Hello everyone and welcome back to the Bridget. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and today we're going to be talking to somebody who will be immediately familiar to any Canadian that's interested in conservatism or conservative politics and that would be Preston Manning. He's probably most well known now as the founder and head of the Manning Institute but he also served as a member of the Canadian Parliament from 1993 to 2001. He founded two political parties both the Reform Party of Canada and the Canadian Reform Conservative Alliance uh, both of these parties became official opposition in the Canadian House of Commons and led to the formal creation of the Conservative Party of Canada, which of course, as all of you will know, formed federal government uh, of this country from 2004 to 2015 under Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Manning himself served as leader of opposition for three years, from 1997 to 2000 and his list of distinguishing awards is very long. He's a companion of the Order of Canada, he's a member of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada, he's a member of the Alberta Order of Excellence, he has received honorary degrees from six different Canadian universities, and he's also the author of many different books. He's written The New Canada and Think Big, and he's joining us today actually to talk about his latest book, which is of course a book a very interesting timing. It's called Faith, Leadership, and Public Life. And this book obviously comes at a time when religious liberty here in Canada is very, very much under threat, and which in which many Canadians feel as if their faith is very specifically marginalizing them from the public square. And Preston Manning comes from a family, uh, as he'll he'll mention in our interview, that was deeply rooted in, in, in Christianity on the prairies and took that with them into politics. He himself was quite outspoken about his faith during his own career. And so I looked forward to the opportunity to just to ask him some questions about his career and his new book. And this is that conversation. <clears throat> To start off, your your new book, uh, by no means your first book, Faith, Leadership, and Public Life. What spurred you to write that book at this time? Well, there's a lot of uh, people of faith, people who hold uh, faith convictions that uh, get involved in politics or interested in politics, and uh, uh, I think it will be helpful to them to... Uh, uh, have some guidelines on how to manage the faith political interface and I've had a fair amount of experience with that and studied it as well so that was one of the main reasons secondly even if one doesn't have a faith perspective I mean uh, religious faith is a major factor in uh, politics around the world uh, particularly more recently with the intrusion of uh, radical Islam into the political arena. So even if one is a, as a secular perspective, it would be wise to understand that faith political interface as best one can. So hopefully it would be helpful to people like that as well. I was uh, thinking as I went through a lot of what you had to say, to what extent did your father have an impact on this book? Well, yes, our family, uh, my, my father was raised on a homestead in Saskatchewan and uh, in the early days of radio, William Aberhart was a prominent uh, high school principal in Calgary and a pioneer of uh, religious radio broadcasting and political radio broadcasting. My father heard one of his broadcasts and and uh, made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ through that and came to Calgary to study for the ministry under 
Eberhard, and then Eberhard and my father got involved in depression politics and ended up in the government. So our, our families had a quite a history of the interface of uh, of faith and politics, and that was, uh, of course, a big influence for me. And it's and it's not just uh, our family. A lot of the Western um, bottom up political movements, the uh, the temperance movement, the farmers movement, the uh, the depression parties, the the, the the cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF, which was the predecessor to the NDP. It again, it was started by ministers by uh, J. S. Woodsworth and uh, and Tommy Douglas. So there's quite a tradition of faith and politics mixing in Western Canada. Sometimes beneficially, sometimes not so beneficially. And I'm kind of an inheritor of that tradition. And so what are the main points uh, in your book that you think will prove useful to people across the aisle? Because obviously you've had a very long career, and I think a lot of people who pick up the book are going to expect there to be a lot of practical tips because you've had a lot of practical hands-on experience in the political arena. Well, there's a number of them. One, I think the main one that I try to communicate to uh, Christian people, particularly people of faith involving themselves in politics, is what, what I call the great guideline that Jesus gave to his own uh, disciples before he sent them out to do public work. You, you recall from the New Testament, uh, according to the scholars, the first year of his public work, uh, his little group of followers, all they did was follow around and watch what he did and, and watch what he said. But about a year in, he uh, decided to send them out to do public work in his name. This is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, and he uh, he gave them a number of instructions, but the cardinal one, in my view, was when he told them in, in, in doing public work from a faith perspective, be wise as serpents and gracious as doves. Right. And I think that's an excellent, uh, and it's a powerful analogy in, the, in using the, was a powerful guideline using taking the analogies that he used because the the serpent in the Judeo-Christian scriptures was the symbol of the devil. So he's saying, "Be shrewd as the devil," and uh, the dove was the symbol of the spirit of God. So he's saying, "Be as gracious as the spirit of God." And I I think that's an awfully good guideline for anybody venturing into the faith political interface. If you look at the political sphere as it is now, your message might be very timely, but it also seems less likely on, on both the southern side of the border as well as ours that people are going to want to heed that sort of advice because it seems that politics generates a lot of heat and, and, and very little light. What sort of practical applications, when you look at the political arena right now, do you think that your book could have that you would really like people to listen to? Because I assume that this book is is timely for a reason. Well, I think uh, one factor, what you're alluding to is politics becoming increasingly polarized. On virtually every issue, people go to one corner and the other corner and right. and fight it out. And there seems to be less and less attempt to find the common ground. Uh, I think one of the, the great messages of the, the Christian scriptures has to do with the reconciliation of conflicting interests. In a way, that's what the whole... Judeo-Christian message is about that, that man got alienated from God and there's a need to reconcile human beings to their you know, the, the supreme being and then 
human beings get in conflict with each other, and there's a need for reconciliation of conflicting interests on the horizontal dimension. And and the whole teaching of the Judeo-Christian scriptures is extremely relevant on that. Like in the Old Testament or in the, in the Jewish scriptures, you have a record of a 400-year experiment to try to reconcile conflicting interests through the rule of law, in particular the Mosaic law. And that's very instructive to a legislator. There are certain things you can do through the rule of law, but but the conclusion of that experiment was that reconciliation through law is you you can't do it it's not enough you need more than the law and then you've got the new testament message is another approach to reconciliation is through self-sacrificial mediation by a mediator that gets in between the conflicted parties and i think all of that is particularly relevant in this uh, political climate where people are polarized and there's fewer and fewer people trying to serve as mediators or reconcilers of conflicting interests. So that's, that brings up a, a very interesting example because your book very much talks about faith being central in the public square and, and how people of faith should bring that with them and should try to implement aspects of their faith in every part of their life, even if it's political life. But here in Canada, we see a lot of, of Christians getting very sort of depressed and overwhelmed by things like the recent Trinity Western University case, where the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that in spite of the fact that forbidding law students from TWU to be uh, to essentially practice law for the Law Society in BC or Ontario, despite the fact that that was a violation of religious liberty, that violation was, in their exact words, of minor uh, significance. So what do you do when it seems like there's two intractable sides and they've staked out areas where one side cannot join the other when things are being asked of, say, people of faith that they in good conscience cannot do, and when those who are asking those things are willing to take them to the highest court in the land and attempt to marginalize them and push them out of the public square in response? Well, I, I think it's a huge mistake by the political class and by the court I itself to seek to simply privatize uh, religious faith and say, well, you, you can hold these views, but that you can't express them in public or bring them to bear in public policy. You must uh, just keep them in the private sphere. You must be, be into the closet. Keep them in the closet. We, we made a mistake doing that in another area, and now we're doing it in this area. And I right. think it's a, a fundamental mistake to uh, circumscribe what, what the Constitution calls fundamental freedoms. It's got this list of freedoms, but it's interesting that the first list is called fundamental freedoms, and fundamental must mean something more basic, and those include the freedom of conscience, religion, opinion, belief, and uh, and uh, expression. And uh, I think there's got to be a, a, a reassertion of the fundamental uh, freedoms, which are those freedoms. And this is a political fight that has to be carried on, but... Uh, uh, I think to circumscribe those rights and tell people well, that you can exercise those rights but only in uh, private and don't do it in public is just a, f a fundamental mistake.
What are some mistakes Christians have made, in your view, over the last several decades that have brought us to this place in which we see faith getting distinctly pushed out of the public square? Well, I think the Jesus guideline was be wise as, as serpents and gracious as doves. And some, to be frank, some believers have been uh, vicious as snakes and stupid as pigeons, <laughs> uh, which is the exact opposite of what he, he uh, uh, of what he he taught uh, for, for believers to be viciously attack their opponents, attack their character, attack their their motives. Uh, that that's not the the Jesus way. He defended himself against his opponents, and uh, he could be quite strong on that. But he he did did not exhibit hatred uh, toward people that disagreed with him. And on the uh, uh, the, the 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 wisdom part of it says some people just uh, of faith just behave foolishly in the political arena, say things that they shouldn't say, uh, do things they shouldn't do, and all of that, of course, discredits uh, the exercise of faith in the in the political arena. You're in many ways an elder statesman of the, the Canadian conservative movement. Uh, you've always been quite open about your faith and the role that it plays. So when you look back at, at your career throughout you know, the founding of several conservative parties, uh, through sort of the years in the wilderness and the establishment later on of a conservative government, what sort of uh, mistakes do you think that we can learn from? And what, like, where do you see it? It's, it's so different when you started than it is now. And that historical chasm almost seems, well, the, the best way to put it is to look at the 2002 Trinity Western case versus the 2018 Trinity Western case. And so in some ways, when your book is practical advice, what do we do when we're, we're, not, we're not actually uh, permitted or we're not welcome to express those views at all? Because in some ways, it seems like um, your suggestions are coming uh, just in time for the Canadian society to reject them. Well, I, I, I think if you're a believer and you also believe in freedom of conscience and freedom of belief and freedom of expression, not just for yourself but for others, that there's just a need to champion that in the in the uh, political arena, and that that the, there needs to be, to use Lincoln's phrase, a new birth of freedom that uh, re reinstates those fundamental freedoms as absolutely essential to, to everyone. And I think that position has to be championed in the, uh, in the political arena by uh, people who believe in it. I think one thing that is quite different in the current political uh, arena from the one that I um, was more active in is the, the whole the use of the social media where this uh, attacking people and attacking them uh, uh, anonymously is so much uh, easier. Uh, on the other hand, you, you have a tool for uh, spreading ideas to large numbers of people very quickly, that which we didn't have before. So there's both pluses and minuses on the use of the social media politically. But uh, I think we have to be, do everything we can to ensure that media is used positively and not not negatively and just as a, an attack mechanism. What are some experiences from, from your career that have really uh, formulated your, your thesis that you put forward in, in your book, Faith, Leadership, and, and Public Life? Well, I, I, uh, I've learned a lot from uh, on this question of the rule of law. As I, as I said earlier, the, 
the Old Testament is a cl- classic book on uh, both the benefits of law and it can achieve great things, but also on the limits to law. And if you're going to be a legislator, and a lot of people that run for office these days don't even realize that's part of the job. The party hardly talks about it, right? About knocking on doors and giving speeches and things like that. But at the end of the day, you get elected to a parliament or to the House of Commons or to a provincial legislature. You make statute law. You're the only ones that can do it. So you better know a little bit about law. And I, I think that uh, one of the things that was helpful to me was studying the Old Testament was this question of the limits to law. There are people who think you can fix every problem by some statute passed by a legislature or parliament. And the lesson of the Old Testament is well, there's a lot of things that law can do, but there are limits to it. You cannot solve every problem with law. There needs to be something else, some other kind of mediation, some other kind of uh, influence. And uh, for a legislator to know both the benefits of law, what can be accomplished by law, but what are the limits, I think is one of the most important uh, things. And I I actually learned that more from uh, studying the uh, Jewish, uh, the Israeli experience with the uh, law of Moses than I did from reading legal textbooks. When you look at a lot of young politicians of faith these days, one of the, the challenges they face almost immediately is a list of pointed questions generally having to do with the, uh, issues like gay marriage, the pride parade, stuff like that, um, insisting that they endorse a position one way or another when many of them would obviously just rather stay silent about these issues. And so being wise as serpents and gentle as doves is obviously even more important now than it ever has been. What advice do you have to upcoming politicians on the provincial and federal level who are people of faith, who do not want to violate their conscience, but face an almost nonstop barrage of questions from people in the media and elsewhere demanding to know their positions on certain things? Well, I think to try to be gracious in those situations rather than either withdrawn or... or, uh antagonistic and again I think you can learn things from Jesus of Nazareth one of the classic stories in the New Testament was uh, his opponents came to him and uh, dragged a woman that they claimed of caught in the act of adultery and dragged her in front of them and and said uh, uh, it's interesting they dragged the woman they didn't drag the guy right. but uh, they, uh, they they said now Moses in the old law says that such people should be stoned what do you say now, now this is kind of like the situation you're talking about they're trying to get him they're trying to embarrass him and get him into trouble and they're doing it by asking a question about sexual behavior which in, the, in that day particularly to raise that question out in public was scandalous so they were really going to put him on the spot and it's interesting to see what he did first of all it says he didn't answer right away which and i tell this to young politicians if you don't know what to say shut up right <laughs> you know right it better to appear to be contemplating the, the uh, or, or delaying than saying the wrong thing uh, but th- then what he did, and it's 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 shrewd. He, he says, uh, uh, "Whoever among you is without sin, uh, wh- whoever here has not done something wrong sexually, uh, let him throw the first stone." Like it's just a brilliant, it's just a brilliant a- answer. And and, he, and, it's, and they couldn't answer him. There were other people in the crowd that knew these guys that were dragging this woman forward. That these were not people as pure as the driven snow either and it says that the, 
accusers slunk away. And then, then he turns to the, the woman uh, and he says, uh, has anyone condemned you? And she says, no, they, they've all gone away. And then he says, neither do I condemn you, which is a pretty, I mean, it, it didn't say, he didn't, it didn't seem to deny that she'd been caught in this act of adultery, and, which was a violation of Mosaic law, but he, he says, neither do I condemn you. But, he says, go and sin no more. <laughs> he, yeah. he, he makes his point, but the way he does it, the, the, the graciousness, the shrewdness of his, how he handled the opponent, and the graciousness he dealt with the, the person that was at the heart of this. I, I just think if we could come anywhere close to handling some of these controversial issues, everything from gay rights to abortion to physician-aided uh, 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 suicide, if we could be as shrewd and as gracious in addressing those as he were, he would, we'd, people of faith would be more influential. I think it was Lincoln who said, in regards to what you said earlier, that it's better to re uh, remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you often get into more trouble in politics by saying too much than you do uh, too little. So when you, besides being wise as serpents and gentle as doves, when, when people are heading into politics and, and they want to, to make their, their faith front and center, and there are still politicians who want to do that, and there are still some great politicians here in Canada who want to do that, uh, when they're reading your book, what are the things that you think should stand out to them the most? Because obviously, as a former politician yourself, I'm sure you watch young people enter into politics and think, if I was them, I would do this and I would do that. And and I assume that in some ways this book is 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 you kind of giving them advice on the way forward. Well, I, I, one of the chapters in the book deals with the, the temptation of spiritual leadership of someone getting into the political arena, and it's, it's based on the, the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, and I take the interpretation of that by the, the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, who wrote this classic, the book The Brothers Karamazov, and he has a chapter in that where. The, 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 on that whole subject of the temptation of Jesus. And, and I, I think it's extremely relevant to someone getting into the political arena who's trying to get public support. Like the, the first thing the, the devil said to Jesus was, why don't you turn the stones into bread? Like you want these people to follow you, just feed them, just meet their most basic and immediate need and they'll follow you by the thousand. Right. Don't, but don't try to talk to them about some of this heavenly bread these higher concepts and, and principles and values. They wanted the faintest idea of what you're talking about. Of course, Jesus rejected that. He said, man doesn't live by bread alone. And then uh, the devil comes to him a second time and says, uh, why don't you give him a show? Why, why don't you get to the top of the temple and you jump down and you have an angel uh, catch you just before you hit the pavement? Like If you do that, it'll, it'll go viral on on YouTube, uh, millions of people will watch it. G give them a show, bamboozle them into your position by appealing to their emotions and uh, and by giving them, by entertaining them. Uh, but don't ask them to make a decision uh, to follow you by the naked exercise of their free will. They won't have the faintest capacity to do that. Just you give them a show, and of course Jesus rejected that. And then the third thing he comes to him and says. Uh, he shows them all the power, political power. He shows them all the political power. He says, uh, I'll give you this if you'll bow down and worship me. And it's a temptation to accept political power 
regardless of uh, who's offering it and regardless of what terms. Uh, and to assume that by grabbing political power, you can accomplish everything that you want to do. And Jesus rejected that, too. Right. Well, those, those are very modern temptations, the, the temptation to just appeal to the electorate on the most immediate, basic uh, level that you can, to, to entertain and, boo- and bamboozle them emotionally into supporting you, uh, and, and to do whatever you got to do to get political power, because then you can do whatever else you want to do. These are very... Uh, contemporary temptations and uh, and the lesson from jesus life is, is re- reject them that is not the way to get uh, genuine I- influence or to bring about uh, beneficial conditions or peace or anything else one final question where can listeners get a copy of this book uh, well, I guess it's, it's in some bookstores. I think the best is, I think it is on Amazon and Indigo, and uh, you can search for it in those uh, online. And you, it's it's published by Castle Key uh, uh, Books, but I think you can get it online is probably the best way to get it. Okay, Mr. Manning, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Okay, well, thanks for your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with Canadian Conservative leader and former politician Preston Manning on his book, Faith, Leadership, and Public Life. Uh, If any of you would like to check out our past shows, you can go to thebridgehead.ca, which features both our written commentary as well as our radio shows. You can check us out on YouTube, iTunes, or SoundCloud, all just looking for The Bridgehead. This show was brought to you by Total Rentals, and we hope that you'll join us again next week.